Good morning. How's everyone doing? Good. Turn with me to Second Thessalonians chapter two. We are going through the book of Thessalonians. We finished chapter one and are now headed into chapter two. We're going to start in verse one. It says, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refused to love the truth. And so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are sending your son back very soon to redeem your people to grab your bride for yourself. We thank you, Jesus, that you give us your truth and your word, that you say you are the way, the truth, and the life. That the only way to the Father is through you. In spirit, we ask for illumination and understanding your word. We want to be people that hear your word and not just know it, but we understand it, we believe it, we trust that it is faithful, and then we live it out. God, you've blessed us with the blessings of Christ abundantly. And remind us of those things, remind us of the purity of your word, the truthfulness of it. And we ask, Lord, that you'd be glorified in our midst today. Thank you for the worship, for us being able to lift up our voices and proclaim you are the true king, that you are the holy one, that you and you alone are worthy of all the praise. What a privilege it is to sing about how amazing you are. Thank you, Father. Bless our time now as we look into the word and illuminate our hearts. We pray with the authority of Jesus. Amen. Chapter 1 of Second Thessalonians was focused on 
the coming judgment that Jesus would bring when He finally comes. And now we shift into chapter 2. And we see right away that there is some confusion among the Thessalonian church. Even after in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, if you remember, Paul deals quite extensively with the coming of Christ. And he even, even goes into chapter 5 some. But we see here, starting in verse 2, it says that he doesn't want them to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. So they still have some confusion, and, and Paul wants to clear that up for him. Even though he spent um, a good portion of 1 Thessalonians addressing it, now he's going to go into 2 Thessalonians, and whatever confusion that they still have, he's going to clear that up for them by laying some things out regarding what to look for when uh, Christ returns, and really before Christ returns. Um, and this is what, when you think about it, this is what a, a good teacher does, right? If there's confusion, um, if there's not clarity then there's going to be clarification, there's going to be explanation, and that's what Paul wants to do. But he starts out by encouraging them in verse 2 not to be shaken. And there's a concept in the Old Testament, and it's just two words, that's repeated over and over and over and over again in the Old Testament. And it is these two words, fear not. Fear not. Over and over uh, you see it in the first five books, the Pentateuch, you see it in the prophets, you see it in the Psalms. These two words appear over and over in different contexts. It's just two words, fear not. And that's what Paul is, is wanting to communicate to the Thessalonians who are shaken that maybe they missed the coming of the Lord. That maybe they had missed something and they, they, were, left, um, they were left out. Isaiah 41 says, fear not. And then it adds these words, for I am with you. For I am with you. And then Jesus in Revelation says this to the Apostle John when he falls on his feet. He says, fear not, I am the first and the last. So think about that for a minute. The triune God is with us, so fear not, right? And also, he's, I mean, he's the first and the last, the beginning and the end, the alpha and the what? Omega, right? So he will be with us. He was there before us, okay? And he's going to continue to be after we end our lives on this earth. He'll be there for all eternity. Amen? So we don't need to be shaken in mind or alarmed really about anything. And when we talk about um, studying the end times, the, the fancy word is eschatology. That just means the study of last things. But here's the thing that I want to emphasize, and I've emphasized this before when we were looking at 1 Thessalonians. But any study when we're, really any study of the Bible, but any study when we're doing last, last, um, last times or end times, it should give us great hope. Because whenever we're studying the end times, we should remember and always have at the forefront that two more words for us, God wins. God wins. Okay, We already know the final score. We already know how it plays out. And God wins. He ends up with the W. That means we end up with the W, right? So if we are just studying um, pop eschatology, pop end time stuff, sometimes we can walk away, if we're not careful, with like doom and gloom 
Um, if that's the case, we're just not studying this issue properly. Because for the believer, we shouldn't have any doom and gloom. We should have hope. Okay? Uh, the unbeliever, yes, there is doom and gloom. We're going to look at that. Um, the believer has an amazing, glorious, eternal life with Christ. When I first got saved, the uh, like email was kind of like in its infancy, like back in the mid-90s, and the internet was just coming about. And so you probably got one of these, um, if you're my age or around a little bit older, you got one of those like forwarded like chain emails, right? I mean, there'd be all sorts of things. Um, and, you know, Procter and Gamble was like the, the, the devil or something like that, the Antichrist, and you could, all these different things. And I remember, especially as a young believer, sometimes those things would like alarm me a little bit. I'd get an email like, oh, there's this blood moon coming. It's the first time in thousands of years we've ever had this blood moon. I mean, most of the time that information wasn't even true. But it'd be kind of alarming sometimes, um, especially as a, a, a new believer who didn't know the scriptures so well. But there was some excitement because it's like, man, we're on the precipice of like the very end, right? And then there's some like, oh man, that's kind of scary. So there's this, there's this kind of a two-edged sword. But here's the thing. Um, too many people read the Bible in one hand, and then they're kind of scrolling through their phone with the news on the other hand. And what ends up happening is they let like current events interpret the Bible. And we have to let the Bible interpret current events. So we want to focus on what we clearly know from Scripture, and we want to focus on what we are clearly given in Scripture. Um, if we have to speculate when it comes to the Word, it's really not worth it. Now, we can make educated guesses, we can give our opinion, but that's how we need to preface it. We want the clear things to be the main things. Is there a right way to study the end times? Yes. And as we're studying it, our faith should be strengthened. Okay? If, we're, if we're digging into the Word on any subject, our faith should be strengthened. We should see God more clearly, and we should actually see ourselves more clearly. More clearly in how much we need Him, and God more clearly in how amazing He is. Being informed on any topic of the Bible is a good thing. In seminary, I took a class on the end times, and we studied this issue um, at a master's level, I mean, quite deeply. So you can go really deep in all sorts of nuances, all sorts of depth. There's lots of information, lots of interesting things, and it's good to be informed on biblical topics. When we talk about Christ's return, specifically the when, the where, the how, um, Let's be, let's be honest, though. It's caused, it's caused division, right? Um, I would say it's needless division. You have pre-tribulation, mid-tribulation, post-tribulation, pre-millennial, amillennial, post-millennial. Um, these are not primary issues. I'd say they're not even secondary issues. Not those particular things. They'd be tertiary, maybe even quaternary, but not primary and not secondary. Certain things... We as believers, we have to agree on with the end times. Like Christ is physically coming back. That's pretty important, right? Now, if, you're not think, if we're not agreeing on that, yeah, that's, that's a primary issue. Okay? He's physically coming back. 
God is going to be faithful to redeem His church. I mean, that's, that's pretty important, right? If you think Christ is coming back and just everybody's saved, yeah, we've got issues. Okay? He's going to separate the sheep from the goats. And there will be the sheep and there will be the goats. Okay? Those are issues to divide on. So if, if someone said Christ wasn't raised from the dead, yeah, that'd be a problem. But we're going to divide on that. If someone said Christ wasn't coming back, that'd be a problem. We're going to divide on that. If someone said Christ wasn't coming back in the flesh physically, that'd be a problem. We're going to divide on that. If someone said Christ wasn't Lord, that'd be a problem. We're going to divide on that. If someone said Christ wasn't coming back to judge the nations, that'd be a problem. We're going to divide on that. And here's the thing. There are some amazing... God's gifted a number of people with just some of the the best intellect out there. Believers that are just sharper than sharp. And they've written some amazing books that all of us have gleaned from. We're going through one right now in our life groups. I mean, those are just great books. And God's gifted people with that. And let me tell you, <clears throat> you can read a book on, on, on the pros of being premillennial and, and you'll walk away being premillennial until you pick up the book on amillennial. And then you'll walk away being amillennial. And then you'll read the post-millennial book. And you'll walk away being... Why? Because it, they can make a pretty convincing argument for each of those positions. Same with the tribulation, pre, mid, or post. Um, here's what, what one, we need to stress a few things. One, um, the Bible is super clear. We don't know when Christ will return. We don't know the day or the hour. What does Jesus himself say in Matthew 24? Concerning that day and hour... No one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. And then, and then about 20 verses later, guess how he follows that up? Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Now, he's, I mean, he's talking to his disciples. And what's he telling them to do? Be on guard. Be prepared. Because you don't know the day or the hour. So we want to be prepared. We want to be ready. What we do know, there's going to be a millennial reign of Christ on the earth of some sort. Some people believe it's now, that'd be the amillennial position. Some people believe it's in the future, that'd be the pre-mill or the post-mill position. We know there's going to be a great tribulation. These are the things that all believers agree on. The question is, are believers going to be here for the tribulation? Are we going to be here for all of it, part of it, or none of it? But we agree there will be a great tribulation. We agree that there's going to be a falling away. Paul mentions it here. The apostasy, your version might say, the rebellion. But there's going to be a falling away. Jesus mentions it too in Matthew 24. And then here we get some specifics where there's going to be a man of lawlessness who rises up and claims to be God. And then we see, and everyone agrees on that, and then we see Christ will physically return to render judgment and reward. But here's what I want to say. Too many people focus on the when. They don't focus enough on the who. Because any, any subject of Scripture, any subject of Scripture, I mean, you take marriage. Can, can you study the topic of marriage in the Scriptures without having Christ there? I mean, you can't. Any subject, I mean, it, it has to have Christ in it. We have to see where Christ is at. So even with the end times, he should be crystal clear at the foremost, at the very front. 
And that's where uh, Paul directs his attention to. He wants to make sure the Thessalonians are focused on that as well. So he paints this amazing picture of Christ coming back. Just glance back at chapter 1 for a moment. And look at this picture that he gives us. He starts out in verse 6, "...since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted, as well as to us." And then here, here he's going, "...when the Lord is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels." Right? So Jesus is going to be revealed. He's going to have mighty angels with Him. And then look at the description that goes on. "...in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God." and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. It goes on. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. When He comes on that day to be glorified in His saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. So what's, what's the picture that we're given here in Second Thessalonians 1 in chapter 2? It's Christ first as judge, right? but then as the King, as the Lord. And finally, if you look down in chapter 2, verse 8, then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of His mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of His coming. He's Christ as conqueror. He conquers the man of lawlessness rather quite easily. So Jesus will return to claim His bride as His own. Shouldn't have any doubt about that whatsoever. Christ is coming back. And if you're one of His, He's going to get you in a good way. Alright? <laughs> the real groom does not forsake His bride. The real groom does not forsake His bride. Your affliction will end. Your suffering will end. Your heartache will end. Your sin will end when Christ returns. And Jesus, and Jesus, and Jesus alone will reign triumphantly over all of us. What does it say in Philippians? Every knee will what? Every knee will bow. Okay? Believers, they're going to gladly bow the knee. Every knee will bow. So, so we got to be ready. We have to be ready. Jesus can return at any moment. I don't care what your uh, end time position is. What, is. what are we told? One, we're told, watch therefore because we don't know the day or the hour. But a couple different times, you're in Second Thessalonians, so just go back well, one or two pages to First Thessalonians chapter 5. Look at verse 2. 1 Thessalonians 5. You yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. What's going to be happening? It says, while people are saying there's peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. Okay? It's going to come like a thief in the night. People aren't going to be expecting it. Second Peter 3, we're going to look at it later, but the first part says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And even Jesus in Revelation tells the church in Sardis that if they don't wake up, He's going to come to them like a thief. How is that? Unexpected. You're not expecting it. And then later He says in Revelation 16, Behold, I am coming like a thief. 
Blessed is the one who stays awake. So we want to be alert and we want to be ready. The other thing we want to do when we're looking at end time stuff is let's not spend so much time on speculation that we miss the proclamation. Let me explain what I mean by that. Because we can end up spending so much time on speculating about this thing or that thing. The point of Jesus coming back is to give us hope, to remind us of the hope that we have. And then we're supposed to take that and we're supposed to proclaim that to other people. Even the Old Testament prophets, they're looking forward, ahead. They're looking through a really dim glass, right? Corinthians says we're looking through the glass dimly. They even had an even dimmer glass. They didn't have all... We're looking back to Christ and we get all these details. They were looking forward to Christ. They had even less details. But when you read the prophets, I mean, they're talking about the day of the Lord. Now there's two aspects which we'll look at. But they're looking forward towards that day. And guess what? They're proclaiming that. That God has set a day and you need to be ready. All the way in the Old Testament, it's proclaimed to the foreign nations, it's proclaimed to Israel itself. To be ready and to proclaim it. Man, we need to make sure that we're proclaiming it. Are we? Like, we need to make sure we're proclaiming that. That Jesus is coming back. That He has set a day for judgment. That all of us must stand before the judgment seat of Christ. So everyone found in Christ, this is important, everyone found in Christ will be preserved in life and death. There's believers right now, somewhere on this earth, in a hospital bed, breathing their last breath. Christ is with them now, and He's going to be with them after their last breath. Before and after, He will be with them. You know, when we talk about the end times, there was uh, a theologian, you probably haven't heard of him, one of the early church fathers, uh, Hippolytus, but he's actually a pretty important theologian. He lived around like, I don't know, 170, 230 A.D., somewhere in that time frame. Here's the thing. He tells this story of a man who comes into his church who had dreams and announced to his church, listen to this, I'll quote it, recognize it, brothers and sisters, that the judgment will happen in one more year. I think he was off a little bit. (laughs) By a few thousand years, right? There's nothing new under the sun. All right, people have been trying to predict, predict when Jesus is coming back for a long time. But what is this day of the Lord? Paul mentions it here. He puts it in the context of Jesus coming back and the gathering of the saints. That's the day of the Lord. It occurs through the prophets in the Old Testament 17 times. Eight different prophets specifically use the term the day of the Lord. What is it? It's the day of judgment when the Lord returns to punish sin and reward righteousness. Paul uses the phrase three times in his letters. In 1 Corinthians 5, you can just listen to it. He's talking, really, church discipline is the context. You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. And then in 1 Thessalonians 5, we just looked at, you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. And then he mentions it here in 2 Thessalonians 2. 
Second Peter, I do want us to look at that now. Look at Second Peter chapter three. Starting in verse 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord... So He's, he's being patient. Verse 9. He wants people to repent. And then He goes to verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then what happens, friends? And then the heavens will pass away with the roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. That's the day of the Lord. That sounds pretty final to me. Okay, these events, this day of the Lord, back in Second Thessalonians, when he says, verse 1, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to Him, Right? Dot, dot, dot. Don't be, don't be afraid. Don't be fearful. Like God has this. <clears throat> to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. That, that's the whole context. The coming of the Lord, the gathering of the saints, is the day of the Lord. One theologian said, these events are aspects of the same eschatological consummation and cannot be separated temporally or theologically. Now, has that day happened? Well, the Thessalonians thought so. You want to talk about some bad teaching there. Some, some false teachers have crept in. Apparently, in, in some form or fashion, whether it was a, a spirit, a spoken word, or a letter seeming to be from the apostles. But Paul now gives a few reasons why the day hasn't come. Look at verse 3. He says, Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come. Unless one, the rebellion comes first. Okay, you could translate it the apostasy. Two, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. So he's saying, hey, part of the evidence that that day hasn't come because y'all are confused, and I've already taught you these things, as he says in verse 5, are these two things. There hasn't been the apostasy, and the man of lawlessness hasn't been revealed yet. So what's he doing here? He's instructing them so that they know what to look for regarding signs of Jesus coming. Okay. Then he goes on in verses 4-9 to nine to lay out a description of the man of lawlessness. And what's, what, what is he doing? He's doing this because he wants Christians to be able to recognize him when he appears. He wants them to know it. So he, I mean, he goes into some good detail here. What does this man of lawlessness do? It says, verse 4, he exposes, or excuse me, he opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. So he's going to, this is going to proclaim to be God. He's going to proclaim to be God. And then it goes on, do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? Okay, what, what, what goes on further? 
And you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Verse 7, only he who now restrains it will do so until he's out of the way. So there's a restrainer which we'll look at. Someone holding back the man of lawlessness from coming. And then, verse 8, and then, and then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of His mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of His coming. By the appearance of who's coming? By the appearance of Jesus' coming. It's that fancy word we've looked at. That Greek word, parousia, the coming. Over and over. That's, that's the word He uses in verse 1. The coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, the parousia. He's referencing it again. When Jesus comes back, basically, He's going to take care of this man of lawlessness. But when does Jesus come back? After the lawless one appears. Jesus kills the lawless one. So this day of the Lord, this is something that the prophets used. I'm actually reading in my quiet time uh, through the Old Testament prophets. There's amazing stuff in there. I encourage you to make sure you're reading your Old Testament as well as your New Testament. Uh, look at Zephaniah, because I was going through Zephaniah and just in my quiet time and you could read Zephaniah, and, and he talks a whole lot about the day of the Lord. He starts out, Zephaniah chapter 1. Be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice and consecrated his guests. Then he goes on about five, uh, about seven verses later. Look at verse 14. The great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. I mean, that's pretty final, right? That's pretty final. Ruin, devastation, darkness, gloom, clouds, thick darkness. That's what Joel talks about too, right? Look at Joel just briefly. Verse, uh, verse 28 is what Peter uh, quotes in Acts chapter 2, the, the, the first uh, Pentecost sermon, so to speak. But Joel 2.28, And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days I will pour out my Spirit. And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So, Joel's calling it a great and awesome day. And Zephaniah's like, it's, it's a horrible day. Like, it's horrible. It's bad. Like, why the two contrasts there? Because it is going to be great and awesome for some people. And it is going to be horrible and awful for other people. 
Think about this. I'll just give an illustration. <clears throat> um, 2011 World Series. Cardinals versus Rangers, Game 7. Was that a great and awesome day? For whom? <laughs> For the Cardinals. What about the Rangers fans? Heart-wrenching and disappointing. Same day, same event, different outlooks on that day, right? So what Zephaniah is describing sounds very much like what Second Peter is describing. The day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. That's kind of a finality to it. That's the end. Like Jesus has come back. <clears throat> the new heavens and the earth, new earth, Revelation 19, 20, 21. We're seeing that firsthand right there. But think about the prophets in the Old Testament. What was their role? What did they do? I mean, they warned and they warned and they warned and they warned and they warned. Their job was to warn. Was to warn. Sometimes they warned Israel of their sin. Sometimes it was the northern kingdom. Sometimes it was the southern kingdom. Sometimes they warned different nations of their sin. But they were warning and calling to repentance. And remember, when you give a warning, when God gives a warning, that is an act of mercy. To warn someone of something bad that is coming towards them that they can avoid is an act of mercy. So he's warning them. Of, think, I mean, think of Jonah, right? Hey, God's like Jonah, and Jonah finally listens. And he goes to Nineveh, right? Hey, I'm destroying your city, God says. But what happens? They respond to the message, and they repent. So the, the act of mercy of the message and the warning results in those people not being destroyed because they listen to the message. Overall, what do the nations do when they get the warnings from the prophets? Do they listen or do they, do they not? Not. What about Israel? Do they listen or not? Not. Okay? Guess what, y'all? That, that little application, if, if the foreign nations didn't respond favorably to the message and Israel as a whole didn't respond, man, we've got to check our hearts. Because that means we could be getting the message and we're rejecting it. We could be rejecting it. So we got to make sure our hearts are right with the Lord. Because He's, I mean, here, you want, you want prophets, they're right here, okay? God's sent the prophets for us. Hebrews says, and then finally sent His Son. Right? So we want to be careful because we don't want to be, even Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians 10, like, hey, um, these things are written for your example so that you learn from them. Okay? Israel had, had their, their examples of what God did to the foreign nations. Did that affect them? No. They had uh, Egypt being brought out of it, the Red Sea, all the miracles, the ten plagues. And how did they respond? In faith? No. Well, let's make sure that's not us. That we don't have the hard hearts. Like, where's our heart before God? Because He is coming back. And you need to make sure you're in that number. And that's why back in Second Thessalonians, 
Let no one deceive you in any way. Friends, brothers, sisters, it is possible for believers to be deceived on all sorts of things. It is possible. The Thessalonians were deceived thinking that Jesus had come back. Holy cow! That's some deception. But what one application for us is, guess what? I mean, they were believers. Believers can be deceived. We're believers. Do the syllogism. That means we can be deceived. And no one ever says, oh, hey, I'm deceived. Why? Because if you thought you were deceived, you'd stop being deceived, right? If you thought, oh, I'm being deceived in this area, well, you'd, you'd figure it out. You'd realize it. As soon as you realize you're being deceived, you stop being deceived. We need to be careful and make sure that we receive the full, whole, 100% counsel of God that's given to us. Israelite rejected it. Are you going to reject it? Well, different churches out there, they're rejecting the Word of God. There's, there's red-letter Christians. They only believe the words of Jesus. Just the Gospels. Only what He says in the Gospels. I mean, which is, which is ironic because, I mean, like, this is God-breathed, right? <laughs> like, all 66 books is Jesus. But people pick and choose. They pick and choose what parts of the Bible they want to believe. Once you start doing that, guess who, guess who becomes the author of Scripture? Yourself. Because now you're deciding what's Scripture and what isn't. We've we got to take it completely. Okay? Holy, fully, entirely. The parts that make us feel good and the parts that don't make us feel so good. Alright? The pretty, amazing, sweet parts and the really horrible, awful, bad parts. It's all there. God lays it out. Sometimes it's in history, right here. Sometimes it's didactic, He's teaching us. Sometimes it's poetical. Sometimes it's nice, pithy little sayings like the Proverbs, but it is His truth that He has given to us. We don't have the privilege of picking and choosing. Once you do that, you just might as well just make up your own rules and just toss the Bible all together and don't insult God anymore and just live however you want. Make up your own little Bible. Plenty of people have done that, so you'll be in good number there. <clears throat> but you'll be damned. So the prophets, they warned. But here's the thing. When we talk about these aspects of the day of the Lord, there's the great and awesome, and there's the awful and horrible. For us as believers, it's going to be great and awesome. It will be great and awesome. And there's two key things. Go back to 2 Thessalonians if you're not there. There's two key things that happen on the day of the Lord. Paul lays them right out in verse 1. The first one is the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The second is our being gathered together to Him. Okay, notice it's the saints being gathered. Some, sometimes if you're reading different books, they call it the gathering. There's the gathering. It's the saints being gathered together. That, which, that can affect your Matthew 24 interpretation, by the way, just a little side note. Um, when one's taken and one's left, it's the saints that are collected together. 
Matthew 24, 31. He will send out His angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather His elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. Here's uh, what one theologian said. The hope of the final gathering of God's people into the land of promise is described repeatedly using this word here that Paul uses. The gathering. The gathering. So, <clears throat> just a little, little side note on, on what was happening with the Jews back in Jesus' time, especially those that were outside of Judea. Um, they were losing their ability to, to, to read Hebrew. That's where the Aramaic comes in. That's what they're speaking. They're reading that. But they're losing their ability. And so what happens is, is the Old Testament, originally written in Hebrew, is translated into Greek. Okay, Greek is the, the, the Koine language, which just it means common, the common language. Right? What's the common language today of, of the world? English, right? You want to do commerce in this world? You're going to be speaking English if you're going to be doing any type of uh, inter-country commerce, at least. So, Greek was the, was the, the, the language of the day. And, and the Jews could read that. So, you get the, the Hebrew Old Testament translated into Greek, and that's what many of them were reading. So, one theologian, actually more than one, many of them, has said the best commentary on the New Testament is the Greek Old Testament. Because that's what the, the writers would have known. Now, Paul, as educated he was, I mean, he could, he could read the Hebrew, he could read and speak the Latin, speak the Aramaic, I mean, he, could, I mean, he was educated. Um, but not everyone was. So he would have been familiar with the Hebrew Old Testament, but he also would have been very familiar with the Greek Old Testament at the time. So when he's using words and phrases, if you're familiar with your Bible, you don't even need the Hebrew or the Greek, you can see those references. Okay. Now the Greek, it brings it out a little more clearly and, and kind of confirms it. And this is one of those places where he's talking about the gathering. Well, this word is used a number of times in the Old Testament, the Greek Old Testament, to talk about the gathering of Israel. Look at Psalm chapter 106. Verse 47, he says, Save us, O Lord our God, and gather us from among the nations, that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. Look at Psalm 147. Verse 1, praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to our God, for it is pleasant and a song of praise is fitting. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the outcasts of Israel. Even the intertestamental writings of the time, so just the writings of the Jews around the time of Jesus, even 100, 200 years before that, not Scripture, but the writings that they just have, just like we have our own writings today, books that we're writing, mentions this concept over and over, that God will gather His people together. Think of, even if you just think of the, um, the uh, example of Israel in Egypt, right? What does God do? I mean, He brings them out of Israel. He gathers them, brings them out. Who comes for them? 
Well, he sends Moses, right? But ultimately, it's God going. What does he do? He's, I mean, he's raining down judgment on Egypt. Ten different plagues, right? It's like a little forecast. A little, little preview of what that day of the Lord is going to be like. If you think about it. I mean, there's going to be judgment, but who was the judgment for? The unbelieving Egyptians. Who was saved from the wrath and the plagues? The Israelites. And then what happened? They're brought out of it. They are brought out of it. So that gathering here in Second Thessalonians, I mean, that's the elect. People that have trusted in Christ. People that have repented of their sins and are seeking after Him. God gathers them together. That's happening on that last day. And note this. I wish I could take credit for it, but I can't. This is a, a, a cool idea I read in, 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 this, in one of these commentaries. He says, the gathering of Christians in worship anticipates and symbolically rehearses this grand eschatological event. Think about that for a moment. The gathering of Christians in worship anticipates and symbolically rehearses. We're coming together, right? It's like a little rehearsal for what God's going to do someday when He comes back for His own. Here's what Hebrews 10, because this... This theologian cites Hebrews 10.25. Listen to it. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more, as you see, what drawing near? The day. Not just a day, or any day, or some day. The day, capital D, the day of the Lord. Okay? Not neglecting to meet together is a habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. That, that's the verse that he's, he's quoting there is kind of that concept. We're gathering together. It's like a little preview again of what God will one day when He comes back to claim us. Let me make a couple applications as, as we conclude. One, let's have grace on people when there's certain things they're not understanding. Think about Paul. I mean, he wrote 1 Thessalonians, spends a good portion of 4 and 5 addressing some issues that they weren't clear on regarding Christ's return, and they're still not clear to them. I mean, it's not clear to them. <clears throat> they were confused. But you read 2 Thessalonians, I mean, he's not harping on them at all, is he? Is he? He's not harping on them. No, he's pretty gracious. He's pretty kind. Now, don't get me wrong. Uh, Paul's more than willing to, to jump on people's case in the Scriptures. And he's more than willing to call out sin and won't beat around the bush. I'm not talking about that. I'm just talking about when you're interacting with people and they're struggling with something or not understanding something, some part of Scripture or maybe just something else. Some of you are all our teachers got some homeschool parents here. You're working with your children. You just got to have grace. You got to have grace. You know, I, I coach basketball I have for many years. And, um, it's, you know, things that I think are just whatever, almost like second nature, I got to understand that's not second nature for everybody. They got to be taught those things. I taught Latin for 20 years. And, <clears throat> I mean, I could pretty much walk into the class and, and teach whatever concept I needed to. And guess what? Most of my students struggled with what I thought was basic concepts. It wasn't basic for them, though. So how do I interact and treat them? 
Make them feel stupid and dumb? No. I want to educate. I want to encourage. I want to help. That's what we see the Apostle Paul doing. That's what we need to do in our own lives. Think about one example that we see in Scripture is Priscilla and Aquila. What'd they do with Apollos? Just, just, uh, just listen to it right now. Acts 18. He began to speak boldly, talking about Apollos in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and jumped on his case. No, they didn't jump on his case. And explained to him the way of God more accurately. Right? They, didn't, they didn't like publicly shame him or anything. They didn't call him out. They, they just pulled him aside. Hey, you, know, you need to clear up a few things over here. Great example. Second application. We need to make sure that we're not living in fear. We need to make sure we're not living in fear. Over and over that phrase appears in the Bible. Guess what? That's because over and over, we need to hear it. We need to hear it. And friends, COVID has people, some people, living in fear. God is trying to show you through COVID, to utterly depend on Him. Okay, Your health, good or bad, it comes from Him. So we need to make sure that we are depending on Him, trusting in Him every breath that we take. Every single breath is from God. And we're not going to breathe one more breath than He wants us to, and we're not going to breathe one less breath than he wants us to. Okay. That's why we're commanded, teach us to number our days, right? They're numbered. We, we need to realize they're numbered. And then we need to act accordingly. So, don't fear. Don't, we're told that over and over, don't fear. Walk in trust with Christ on this issue. Finally, let's not be caught off guard. There is a day that Christ is coming back. And the scripture says it's very soon. And I want each person in this room to be with the sheep on that day. I want each of you to be there. But guess what? That comes through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. That comes through putting your faith and trust in Him. That comes from repenting of your sin. Such an unpopular word today. Repenting of your sin. You can't have your sin and Jesus too. You just can't. It's a fact. If you're going to walk with Jesus, guess what? You're going to walk with Jesus. You're going to choose Him over your own selfish desires. And guess what? Each one of us has selfish desires. Right? Right? Let's just be honest. we got selfish desires. We wage war against the flesh, the Word says. We wage war. We don't just wave the white flag like, I give up. I'm going to give in. I'm going to surrender to those lusts. No, we wage war against them. We wage war against them. So don't get caught off guard. Look, we're called, and it's our theme this year, to run the race. Run the race. Run the race. How do we do it? With perseverance. How do we do it? We keep running. How do we do it? With the goal in mind. That we have a finish line. Paul says what? I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. Right? He's like getting ready to cross that finish line. We don't know where our finish line is. Sometimes God in His mercy lets us see that finish line. 
We might be lying in that hospital bed someday. We can, the finish line is real close. Other times, we don't know. It comes real quick. But that's why we got to be prepared for his return. That's why we want to keep running faithfully. Over and over again, guess who gets saved at the end? Those who persevere. That's what it says. Those who persevere to the end. We have to make it. We have to cross that finish line. The first 10 years of your Christian walk, you can't be relying on them. Actually, what you need to do is not even rely on the next 10 years in what you do. It's a reliance on Christ to help you through each step of the way. Every single step of that race, it's a dependence on Christ. You are leaning entirely on Him. And some people are like, oh, you know, you know Jesus is like a crutch. I'm like, man, if that's the case, like, get me a Jesus wheelchair, okay? <laughs> like, that's what our dependence needs to be. Complete dependence on Him. Like, take that insult as a compliment. Like, yeah, he's a crutch and a whole lot more. Let me tell you about him, all right? Like, he is good and gracious and kind and walks with us every single step of the way. Proverbs says, the righteous fall, and how many times do they get back up? Seven times, right? And then it's the idea of, like, continually, right? And what we learn in the Christian walk is, guess what? It's not us picking ourselves up from our own bootstraps. No, it's, it, it's Jesus, like, dusting us off, lifting us up and putting his arm around us and walking again. And we're going to trip again and he's going to be there to get us back up again. He is so faithful. He says he will never leave us nor forsake us. Every single step of the way. So depend on him completely and fully. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we... We confess our dependence upon you, the triune God, that we need you all the time, every time. God, I I intercede for myself, my family, this church, for the times that we have not, that we've not relied on you. And we've done things in our own strength and in our own power and our own flesh. Forgive us. Forgive us. And thank you for repeatedly showing that you are our everything. You truly are the Alpha and the Omega. You are the beginning and the end. You are our everything. Lord, let that not just be words that we speak or words we hear and agree with, but a reality in our life that we live out. And Lord, I pray for each person here. Whoever here might not know you, Lord, let these words today convict them of their sin and realize that judgment is coming for them and they need to repent. Weigh it heavy on them now so that there is no burden and no heaviness on judgment day. Let them repent and trust in you. Jesus, thank you that you are coming back to claim your bride, that you're going to gather us together, that we will be in your presence continually, eternally, forever, praising your name. We see you now, Jesus, but it's through that glass dimly. And very soon, very soon we will see you face to face. Continue to strengthen us, Continue to have us run the race well. Continue to have us fight the good fight. 
for your glory and your glory alone. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.